Our scripture reading is Psalm 69. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is on the doctrine of the atonement. One thing that Article 21 of the Confession emphasizes is that what Jesus did on the cross was something anticipated by the Old Testament scriptures. The language of the confession is as the prophets had predicted. And one of the things I hope to enjoy with you this evening is the way in which that word predict is much more richer and deeper and complex than we often think it is. We read Psalm 69 as an illustration of that. Our confession quotes Psalm 69 as speaking of the suffering and death of Christ. And so we read these words with that understanding. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel." For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually." Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. 
Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we gather together around the teaching of your word, it is our desire that we would be shaped and formed by these things. And so we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might understand the teaching of your word, receive it by faith, and live lives of gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 21. We're going to read these words aloud together. It's printed in your bulletins. God speaks to us through His Word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's Word. Article 21 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together, We believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, made such by an oath, and that he presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood for the cleansing of our sins as the prophets had predicted. For it is written that the chastisement of our peace was placed on the Son of God, and that we are healed by His wounds. He was led to death as a lamb. He was numbered among sinners and condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, though Pilate had declared that he was innocent. So he paid back what he had not stolen, and he suffered the just for the unjust in both his body and his soul, in such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. He cried, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, we rightly say with Paul that we know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. We consider all things as dung for the excellence of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made, which renders believers perfect forever. This is also why the angel of God called him Jesus that is, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins.
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we do this work together of gathering together a second time each Lord's Day to study the Belgic Confession, it is helpful to remember what we are doing. We are being reminded of doctrines of the Christian faith that it can be easy to neglect, to forget their importance and significance for the Christian life. And so as I've said to you many times, whenever we come to something in the confession where we think this is not what I was looking forward to studying or talking about or doing work on, quite often that is the whole point. That there are things in the Christian life that are deeply important for us that we also find it very easy to neglect the importance of. And so we want to embrace that challenge every time we come to a doctrine of God's Word. Another thing we are doing is the Belgic Confession, and this is something particularly happening, I think, this evening from Article 21, is we're being reminded of the scriptural rootedness of these doctrines. We have before us this evening the doctrine of the atonement. In many ways, it is very basic, simple to communicate. And one of the things the Belgic Confession is challenging us to do is to enjoy, to appreciate, to to grow in our sense of the roots of this doctrine in Scripture. And then finally, this article in particular goes to great lengths to persuade us why this doctrine matters. For several articles, really the last three or four, we've been headed toward this moment. Why so much time spent on this? We have heard many times now in our study the necessity of both God's justice and mercy being expressed at the cross of Christ, Jesus being fully human and and fully divine, that he might do that work on the cross. Why? In many ways, it's all been headed to this point. Well, these are the three things you have before you on your outline. First, the doctrine of the atonement. Second, the scriptural roots of the atonement. And then third, the spiritual richness. First, the doctrine. As I said, the doctrine of the atonement is in many ways quite simple. Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sin. This is the opening paragraph of the confession. We believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever after, according to the order of Melchizedek, made such by an oath, that he presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood for the cleansing of our sins. The end of the second paragraph, he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. The end of the third paragraph, this is why the angel called him Jesus, that is Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. It is a simple, basic summary There is something that our sin deserved. Jesus took that all upon himself that we might be forgiven. And yet, as simple as it is in the history of the church, in very modern, recent history of the church, this is a doctrine that is often rejected, often treated as being embarrassing, and often, even when maybe neither of those two things would be done overtly, it is neglected. Many find it embarrassing to say that God demanded death for our sins. Many find it very embarrassing in a culture that prizes being nice above all else, finding it very embarrassing to say that blood had to be shed because of what we have done. And so we need to say a few more specific things to make sure we are being clear about just what it is we are confessing in this doctrine. Letter A. 
The death of Jesus was effective. Effective. What do I mean by this? The death of Jesus did something. It accomplished something. There was something that wasn't true before it and something that was true after it. He satisfied, accomplished something that needed to be done. Why do we have to say this? Because many in the history of theology have wanted to say, Jesus showed us love and gave us an example. Many in the history of theology have wanted to, okay, sure, technically, if you gave them a test, they could pass the test saying that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But the impression given, the way the Christian faith is spoken of, the the way it comes across to others is, well, Jesus died to give us an example of love so that we will then love others. And what is missed in all of that is the language, for example, of 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word there, propitiation, this is what the Belgic Confession is referring to in the first article, uh, that Christ presented himself in our name before his Father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction. To propitiate means to turn away the wrath of God. That there was something our sins were headed toward, something that was to fall upon us because of our sin, and Jesus took that upon himself instead. So that something objective and real has happened. A true human being, infinitely righteous, truly fully divine, has satisfied, has paid for, has turned away the wrath that our sin deserved. We must fully embrace this. The doctrine of the atonement is ultimately lost if we are not willing to speak this way. There is wrath our sin deserved. Christ, by his death, paid the penalty, satisfied that, turned it away. Now, this must be embraced, but it also must be understood rightly. It is too easy in our eagerness to recover that, to give a summary where God is angry with sin, Jesus died on the cross to turn away that wrath, to pay the penalty, to speak too much in a way that divides the Father and the Son. As though the Father is the angry one and the Son is the one who wanted to do something nice. We must remember the oneness of God. That all of God's actions in the world are one. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully united in all that God does. And so while we can distinguish the roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the work of redemption, all of them are in full agreement in wanting to do this, and wanting to accomplish this. The Scriptures also speak of the wrath of the Son against the wicked. And the Scriptures also speak of it being precisely the love of the Father that is revealed when Christ dies on the cross. One of the ways to try to be clear about that is letter B. The death of Jesus was purposeful. The Belgic Confession uses this language repeatedly. The first sentence, we believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever. And what did he do? That he presented himself in our name before his Father. In his death, Jesus is actively engaged. It is not just something happening to him, though that is a way to talk about it. It is also something he is doing. He lays down his life and he does it purposefully. 
The confession speaks of Jesus offering himself. It uses the language of him pouring out his precious blood. All of those phrases are right there in the first paragraph. And what's the point? Jesus is actively doing it. So, if we're trying to emphasize the unity of God and what happens at the cross, we want to say that the Father shows his love in the death of Christ and that Christ is actively giving himself, actively sacrificing himself in that work. One example of scriptural language to this point, John 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus actively, purposefully, lays down his life on the cross. Third, letter C, the suffering of Jesus was real. This is another thing we must be very clear about to understand the atonement rightly. The atonement is possible. This work of Jesus paying the penalty for our sin is possible because he is fully God and fully man. Because he is fully man, one of the things that makes possible is true and real suffering. Now I say this both because it is doctrinally important. We should not think of Jesus as a superman wherein his, his being divine sort of canceled out his humanity. He remains fully human even as the natures are united in the, in the one person. So that when the scriptures describe his suffering, it is real suffering. Our Belgian Confession makes this point in its scriptural references. The second half of the second paragraph. In such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. This referring to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is anticipating his suffering on the cross and he prays, Father, if it be your will to let this cup pass from me. That there is something, a path he must walk, something he's going to go through that in very real and meaningful and deep ways he is praying that he would rather not do. And to fully sense that, to fully have that speak to us the way the scriptures intend for it to speak to us, we must be having in view his real humanity. Likewise, the Belgic Confession quotes Psalm 22. He cried, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And there's debates about this, but I am of the persuasion that when Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus said those words, it's being said as a heading for Jesus praying the whole psalm. All of the experience of David's suffering described in that psalm being expressed as the real experience of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why does it matter to appreciate his real suffering? That he's not just floating over the events. They don't just pass through him. But the agony is real. The fear is real. The pain is real. Not just bodily pain, but the anguish of soul anticipating the wrath of God against our sin. Because all of that is one of the ways in which God himself is being made known to us. What he was willing to take upon himself for the sake of accomplishing our salvation. And all of that is one of the ways that this doctrine is rooted deeply in Scripture. And so we look, second on your outline, the scriptural 
roots of the atonement. This doctrine is not based on isolated New Testament proof texts, but is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. And the Belgian Confession uses the language as the prophets had predicted. When the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus died, he suffered and died, and that he rose again, and Paul uses the phrase, according to the Scriptures, he doesn't mean we know this happened because the Bible tells us it happened. What he means is when it happened, it was in accordance with the Scriptures that had come before the event. It was anticipated by the Scriptures. It fulfilled those Scriptures. Jesus himself said this, Luke 24, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Elsewhere in Luke 24, he refers to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, the three headings for the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus' point is that all of it spoke of him, and all of it spoke of the necessity of this death to pay the penalty for sin. And here's the key. It spoke of it not by way of pulling out individual verses, but by way of whatever verses you could point to representing how all of the scriptures spoke of Jesus Christ. When we hear that word predicted, I think we could be tempted to think simply of verses that say an event is going to happen and then say, oh, look, it happened. But the, the language of prediction there has much more in view to that. An entire story that needed to be fulfilled. Patterns of God doing things that anticipated the most complete expression of that pattern. Cycles and events that pointed forward to a future event that would be the culmination of all that God had been doing. And all of that is running through all the scriptures. Letter A. This is present in the Psalms and Prophets. The Belgic Confession quotes from both. It makes much, for example, of Isaiah 53. Many of the quotes there are from Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant, in some sense representing Israel, but also clearly suffering on behalf of Israel for the sake of the salvation of Israel. That's a passage that could in many ways be taken like a prediction, as though Isaiah were simply saying, one day there's going to be someone who will do this. Now, he was saying that, but not in such a direct way. He was also speaking of Israel's suffering. He uses language in Isaiah 53 that evokes in some ways the suffering of Abraham and Isaac in the story we saw this morning in Genesis 22, that there is a pattern through the history of Israel that the Messiah would be the culmination of. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this just in the Belgic Confession is this language. So you have the references to Isaiah 53. Then the article says he's condemned by Pontius Pilate. And then it says, so he paid back what he had not stolen. And there's a footnote in the article for Psalm 69. Psalm 69, where David says, Oh my goodness, I just lost the verse. <laughs> well, we're going to find the footnote. Article 21 of the Belgian Confession. Brennan, don't do this. <laughs> Article 21 of the Belgian Confession, when it makes the reference to 
So he paid back what he had not stolen. That is a footnote for Psalm 69, verse 4. I thought it was looking at verse 4. Let's just read it then. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Now, here is what is so interesting about this. The confession cites this verse as speaking of the suffering of Christ, that Jesus paid back what he had not stolen, meaning he paid a debt that was not his debt. He paid a debt on behalf of someone, someone else. But in Psalm 69, it's clearly speaking of an event happening to David. It's not a prediction of something that would happen in the future. It's David saying, this is happening to me. He is singing of real suffering happening to him at that time. So when the Belgic Confession points to a verse like that, or when the New Testament repeatedly points to Psalm 69, I'm sure you noticed in the reading various verses that the New Testament speaks or uses to speak of the suffering of Christ. What is going on? Well, this New Testament is saying, and the Belgic Confession is saying, following the New Testament scriptures, that there are patterns happening in the Old Testament, patterns that are given their shape by the Son of God, by the Word through whom all of it was revealed, which then finally is manifest most clearly, announced, proclaimed in the definitive act of Christ's death and resurrection. So here we have someone suffering unjustly a pattern through the scriptures of which Jesus would be the ultimate example of. Here we have David, anointed to be king of Israel, representing Israel, suffering in part because of that office he had been given. Again, a pattern pointing forward to what Jesus would be the ultimate example of. We have David in this suffering, speaking of it leading to a deliverance. Praying for deliverance, a pattern of suffering followed by deliverance. Again, a pattern seen throughout the scriptures of which Jesus' death and resurrection would be the culminating, the example that it was all pointed to all along. Now we could go with example after example. The point is simply this. When the Belgian Confession says predicted, it doesn't just mean isolated verses. It means all of it is given its shape by the Son. All of it anticipates Him. All of it speaks of Him. Likewise, let her be the books of Moses. We can think of the sacrifices of Israel over and over in Israel's life, speaking of the need for a sacrifice on their behalf, and yet the sacrifice is being repeated, making it clear they're not actually accomplishing it. And so they promise it, but they don't accomplish it in a way that anticipated the one who would actually do it. The Passover made this clear. Throughout Israel's life, there were these patterns, things happening that anticipated what the Christ would do. Or all the way back to Genesis. The confession refers to the order of Melchizedek, anticipating a priest who would not be an Israelite, a priest who would not be a Levite. The role of Abraham as a mediator, saying and doing things on behalf of the world, anticipating what Christ would one day do. The sacrifices after the flood, the animal skins that Adam and Eve are given after their fall into sin. All the way to the very beginning, it is clear, God is going to provide something that they could not do that would pay the penalty for sin and turn away his wrath. Or, all the way to the words of Abraham in the land of Moriah, agonizing over the potential death of his son, saying, the Lord will provide. And in that the Lord providing would be the Lord being revealed. 
again, a pattern, ways of God doing things that then is completed, fulfilled in the death of Christ for us. What does doing all of that work do for us? Well, perhaps it's Perhaps what some of us have most needed is to be strengthened and encouraged in the conviction that this really is scriptural. We need to speak this way. But as we see the scriptural rootedness, is not one of the things that, that emerges, that comes out of it, is that this isn't just an isolated thing that God did once in history, but that it clearly is revealing the very character and identity of God. It has always been his way. It is what he was anticipating all along. And so we defend this doctrine not just because we have to, Right? The Bible says it, our confession teaches it, and so we believe it. But we defend it because we believe it is spiritually rich. Number three on your outline, the spiritual richness of the atonement. This doctrine shapes and forms all of life. Letter A, the atonement makes us confident in the forgiveness of our sins. It is, was the intention of God from the beginning. It was revealing the character of God from the beginning, who He is, that He would forgive in a way that was both just and merciful, that He could forgive in a way that He could say, look, I'm not just ignoring your debt, the debt is actually paid. I'm not just saying, never mind, it doesn't matter anymore on a whim, like He could just then whimsically change His mind on that, but that He would announce it's actually satisfied. There is no debt anymore. Not just that he's ignoring it, but that it is done. It is accomplished. And so the confession says, Therefore we rightly say with Paul that we know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. That this is an essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's point when he says that is not ignore the resurrection. right? Nothing but Jesus and him crucified. What he means is, we only want to know. We only know. We only proclaim. We only speak of a Christ who is crucified and then rose again, ascended into heaven. Why? Because there is our confidence, in the language of the Belgic Confession, that believers have been rendered perfect forever. What beautiful language. This one and only sacrifice once made, which renders believers perfect forever. The Confession has gone through articles to build up how this doctrine works, so much scriptural rootedness, so that you might then have that confidence. Sins forgiven, period. Letter B. The atonement then frees us from seeking or inventing any other way to be right with God. The Belgic Confession says this. We find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice. Oh, now wait a minute. This challenges how we live. Because... We are constantly inventing ways to prove ourselves right with God, constantly inventing ways to make ourselves on God's good side, constantly inventing ways to set us apart from others so it can be clear we are the ones who are right with God. We are constantly trying to invent, to manufacture something we can take pride in instead of simply pointing to the sacrifice of Christ for us. Now, in the context of the Reformation, the obvious target here that the Confession is going after is errors in Roman Catholic theology that would suggest something more needed to be added, whether it be the righteousness of the saints, whether it be our own righteousness contributing to our justification. But it is too easy to point fingers at those errors, and then, well, ironically, what do we end up doing? 
being kind of proud of ourselves that we've got it right. And now we're right with God because we have our, oh, you see how that goes. You see, let's not simply point at that which is easy to point to, but be challenged to seek out, to root out the ways in which we are ever and always seeking to earn God's favor. Modern evangelical pietism is full of this. So much anxiousness about every detail of the Christian life that is driven, at least in part, by the need to make ourselves, to prove ourselves, to assure ourselves as truly being right with God. Especially if we can be more anxious than the other person. Then we're really spiritual. A kind of fastidiousness and particularness that is an exact replica of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' error was not simply trying to a theology that said we earn something from God by our righteousness, but their error was the idea of particularness itself, precision itself, being the thing that would set us apart, being the thing that would make us right and that would show us to be right with God. Or it could be matters of spiritual experience, right? ways of feeling God's presence, ways of talking about God's presence to somehow earn or prove being right with God. Or the danger of doctrinal precision. And this might be the most anxious one. As though being right with God is a theology test. Get all the details right. Now, all of these things participate in things that are good. Loving God's law, being concerned for being faithful to God in every area of life is a good thing. But it flows from a confidence that we are right with God already because of what God has done for us in Christ. Likewise, wanting to grow in our theology, grow in spiritual experience, all of these are good. But let us be clear that they are non-anxious, that they are not earning, they are not deserving, that they flow from what God has already done. Or, in the language of the confession, letter C, The atonement provides us with all comforts. I am struck, I'm surprised. I just really, really like how the Belgic Confession says, we find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or event. That there is some sense in which all that we need in the Christian life All the comforts that God announces, proclaims to us, can be found in the suffering and death of Christ. That yes, indeed, it's about the forgiveness of sins. It's about the promise of being right with God. But it's more than that. Romans 8, 31 and 32, we read it this morning. Listen to the conclusion that Paul draws from the suffering and death of Christ. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Wow, this is, this is what the Belgian Confession is alluding to here. That Paul says that, that God's giving of his son on the cross and the son's self-giving of himself, making the father known, makes us sure that God would with him give us all things. All that you need for the life of faithfulness, of perseverance, of faith through seasons and circumstances of life. All that you look to your heavenly Father for. Provision in the ordinary things. Faith and perseverance in times of fear and trial and anxiety. Faithfulness in fighting against sin. When you are praying for those things, when you are seeking those things, one of the things God has done to encourage and embolden and strengthen you in that is the death of Christ on the cross. Because... It's not just 
a particular act, it is revealing him. It is making him known so that the Apostle Paul can say, God is for us. All of your dependence upon God's fatherly care and providence, all of your need to be confident that spiritual darkness, demonic evil has been defeated, every moment you're asked to walk a path that is dark and difficult, all of it is a situation, a circumstance in which God provides comfort through the death of Jesus. God's heart made known to us. Letter D. We therefore continue to say with Abraham, the Lord will provide. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the suffering and death of Christ for the effectiveness of what he has done in paying the penalty for our sin and turning away the wrath that all of our sin deserved. And we ask you to receive, through the promises you have given to us, all comforts through what Christ has done for us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.